You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany Sermon Series, Stories of Jesus, New Life, and a New Family. In this series, we see that those who respond to the stories of Jesus are welcomed into the family of God, receiving new identity, new power, and new purpose. Now hear the word of the Lord. Immediately after this, Jesus insisted that his disciples get back into the boat and cross to the other side of the lake while he sent the people home. After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them, walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you guys this morning. I wasn't sure if we were going to have church at the nine o'clock service, and now welcome. It's good. Glad you're here. Uh, There's some confused people. Because it was 9 a.m., but 8 a.m., right? Is that how that works, 9 a.m., 8 a.m.? I don't understand. I don't really know where I am, to be honest. Is it February or March? It's March? March. Uh, my name's Jonah. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're visiting with us, welcome. Um, we are ending a series on uh, a few chapters of Matthew called, um, we've called it the stories of Jesus, and they focused on stories Jesus told and then stories uh, about the life of Jesus that were intended to show us who Jesus is so that we would come to him. Um, we would experience new life in a new family that he offers us. Uh, today we're wrapping up that series with kind of a miracle in two parts, one about Jesus and one about Peter. It's a great final story uh, to give us another picture of who Jesus is and what it means to be his people. And next week we're going to start a series about who this people are, And a spoiler alert, this new people, this new life in a new family is called the church. And that word can make different people feel different ways. Uh, If you've been, if you know me or if you've been coming to a church for a while, you may have heard me joke. I didn't grow up going to church very often, uh, which means all of my church baggage is from you people. Uh, (laughs) But (laughs) a lot of us carry um, a lot of wounds from our experiences at, at church. And we've experienced the exhaustion of looking for a place that checks all of our boxes. So you've got, we all pretty much agree on the big stuff, but then by the big stuff, it's things like, you know, Jesus is God and those things. And then there's all kinds of secondary and tertiary things that we have, you know, they got to agree on. And so they've got to believe on these extra things that matter a lot to me. And they have to preach this way in this translation of the Bible. And they have to sing this kind of music and do this kind of kids. You know what I'm saying? The, the checklist. And uh, you, this will be crowd participation time. Uh, what do we call that process of looking for a church these days? If you need to find a new church, what do you do? Church shopping. Isn't that insane? Uh, well, how much does that reveal about what we think about church and what church is for? Uh, what that does is essentially makes me and the rest of the staff kind of like the managers at Walmart, and we've got to get our products in line. Um, and in a couple of weeks, Bobby and I are going to the, the SBC National Conference, 
to make sure our church is on record saying we think a bunch of stuff that's being said is really stupid. And so Bobby and I are going to go try to pick some holy fights. We're not going to pick fights because I did that in the first service too. There's a quali- one of the qualifications for an elder is not to be quarrelsome. So we're not going to pick fights. We're going to stand up against injustice and stupidity. Um, but thank you. My point in saying that is if you want to know what this kind of like church shopping mentality has created, go to a, a pastor's conference. Um, because when you go there, the first question you get is, so how many are you running? Which means how many people are attending? And then they'll be like, what are you doing about this? And it turns into this competition about who's got more, more people coming, who's got, oh, hey, let me listen, let me give you the record. Our church just said, oh, you did that record? Well, cool. Here's the the mercy booklet we did to take all of our poor people through. And oh, well, you did that. Well, here's our new marriage curriculum. And it's like, you know, it turns into this competition because church has become this place where we come to get our needs met and our itches scratched. And to be on church staff or to be a pastor means you got to put together the best product for so to keep your parents happy, to keep you happy, to keep your children happy, to keep your non-Christian friend happy, and your exhausted former Catholic friend happy, and your kind of curious Anglican friend happy, and it just becomes exhausting. And there was a time when that word church didn't sound as funky as it does today. It, it didn't mean so much a place where you consume to get all of your boxes checked. Um, the church was more so a people than it was a place. It was more so a community than it was a place to just consume and get all of our our needs met. Um, The result of this endless kind of box-checking, church-shopping mentality is that many of us are frustrated with the church. And obviously not this church, but the one you left to come to this church. I mean, I know our baptism numbers, and it's not as many as our attendance numbers, right? So a lot of you are here because you're frustrated with the church that you you left for whatever reason. Um, maybe you carry deep wounds from the church, skeptical of church leadership, uh, skeptical of membership or ministries. Um, maybe you've just become bored with the church. If none of those apply to you, because here you are at church on a Sunday, if none of those apply to you, I would be shocked if they didn't apply to somebody you know. Or if, if you just said, hey, can you think of someone who's bored or hurt by the church and has decided not to come anymore? I would guess someone comes to mind. So starting in Matthew 15, next week, we're going to look at what the Bible means when it says church. We'll answer questions like, what makes a church a church? Is it just putting a sign in front of the door that says church? What's happening now? Well, I guess that's a church. What makes a church a church? Why should I invite my friend back to church? Why should I even go to church? There's this rising sense of, well, you know, for me, because of all the things that's happened in the church and the church doesn't really get it, you know, I go to Bernheim Forest and that's where I worship God, me and Jesus and my spirituality. I don't need to go to church. Those kinds of, those kinds of thoughts. So next week, we're, we're starting a new series simply called Come Home, uh, Full Life in a Whole Church. What does it look like to be the church? What does Jesus mean when he says, you're a new people, and this new people is called the church? Who are we? What do we do? Um, I hope you can join us and maybe invite that friend that you're thinking of. Uh, You know, I'll be honest. The church is a mess, and it's a weird club to be in, but it's the only place a Christian can thrive while we're waiting for Jesus to come home. Um, This is the place that he's called us to be and to journey together. 
And that's, you know, in our name, Sojourn, we're on a journey. We're traveling together as a people uh, with a destination in mind, knowing we won't reach it until Jesus comes back. So hope you can come uh, next week. We're really excited for the next few chapters of Matthew. Um, this, this week as we end, we get to this point, the most definitive declaration of Jesus's identity to this point, and maybe the core invitation of how we come to experience new life in this new family, how to come in and become part of this family he calls the church. And, and Matthew, as he's writing, is being very clever here too. Um, I'm just going to tease you with that. We'll draw this out throughout, but it's going to be important for the next few minutes to try to turn your imaginations on and put yourself inside of this famous story. Um, maybe you need to picture it going on in your mind, find a character that you really identify with. So to recap what, what's happening here, Jesus has just finished a staggering miracle. He provided bread from heaven to feed thousands and thousands of people. We talked about this last week. Um, he fed you know, probably upwards of 10,000 people because the scripture talks about they didn't count the women and children, but God still fed them. And so if there's 5,000 men, there's probably at least 10 or 15,000 people there. All of those people got fed from five loaves and two fish. When he's done with that, with the miracle, he sends all of the people home and Jesus tells his disciples to get on a boat and go across a lake. And look at what Jesus does. Verse 23 says, After sending them home, he went up into the hills by himself to pray. Night fell while he was there alone. And I, I love this because it, it reinforces to us the humanity of Jesus. If, if you go back before the feeding of the 5,000, uh, it said Jesus went off to be alone because he had heard the news that his cousin had been executed. Um, John the Baptist had died, and it said Jesus wanted to go be alone. He wanted to pray. And as he's going out to be alone, all of these crowds come, and they're clamoring for his attention, and they're bringing all of their needs. And so he provides for them. And when he's done doing this miracle, he's still tired. He's emotionally, physically, spiritually, he's just, he's worn out. Yes, he's God, and yes, he's human. And we see a tired Jesus here who wants to go again and be alone with his father. So now the disciples are out in the middle of the boat and Jesus is up praying. We're in the middle of the night and the disciples are in a tight spot. Uh, verse 24, it says, a strong wind had risen. Where are we here? A strong wind had risen and they were fighting heavy waves. Now, if we just had this verse, it doesn't tell us a whole lot about kind of the emotional state of the disciples. We know the story, and it was just read for us a few minutes ago, but I just want you to notice that it doesn't say they were scared right here. Everybody see that? Not a little bit. They're fighting heavy waves. They're doing what sailors do. I don't really know what sailors do. They're jibbing the mainsails and hoisting the sashes. I don't, but they're, <laughs> is that a thing? I don't know. But they're fighting heavy waves. Uh, there's no sense of panic or just based purely on what the text is saying. They're fighting heavy waves and doing the things that sailors do. And then in, in verse 25, there's a shift, 25 and 26. Jesus came toward them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were, someone say it, terrified. So it's not the storm, it's not the waves that scared them, it's Jesus. So sometimes... This is a great reminder that sometimes the freedom God is bringing to us will be terrifying at first. Or to, to put it another way, healing is right in front of them and they mistake it for a haunting. 
they see the deliverance of God coming and they think it's something demonic. There's all kinds of, I'm, these play on words are happening right now, y'all. Uh, you see, they mistake what is happening. It's freedom that is coming for them to set them free from all of their fear and their immediate response is terror. Jesus, it says, the text at the end of verse 26, it says he spoke to them immediately. And this is one of the reasons I love Jesus. You could talk to my wife sometime. I tend to enjoy socially uncomfortable situations. Uh, I like letting them linger a little bit. Um, I like creating them. I do it less so than when we were first married, sanctifying power of a good woman in my life. Uh, but I like that Jesus doesn't let the fear keep rolling. It says it's, he speaks to them immediately, and he says something brief but very, very powerful. So verse 27, he says, don't be afraid. Take courage. I am here. And so if you grab one of the, I called them pew Bibles in the first service, but clearly they're not. They're seat Bibles, I guess, chair Bibles. You could grab one of the Bibles in the seat back in front of you or underneath you, and that verse would probably read different. If you read an NASB, it would read different, or a King James Version, it would read different. And that's because the, the sentence this is being translated from sounds really weird in English, and we're all just all the translators are trying to find a way to have it make a little bit more sense. So if we just did a straight, here's what the words are saying, translation, this is what Jesus is saying to them. Next slide. Take courage, I am. <laughs> okay, don't be afraid, right? Okay, so this is where your imaginations are a little bit helpful. Uh, I envision Jesus, I don't, he probably didn't have long hair, but I like, a lo I like me a long-haired Jesus with a big beard, not a cloche beard, but a big beard, and he's got thick leather sandals on, and he's got, you know, nasty toenails because he's working hard, and he's got muscles because he's, you know, been doing carpentry work, and so he's standing on the waves, the waves are whipping up over, slapping him on the waist, the wind's blowing, his hair's blowing, he's soaking wet, and he says to these scared disciples, take courage, I am! It's a little weird, right? Take courage, I am. Are you taking courage, Jesus? Are you, you're taking courage? So don't be afraid because it's a strange thing for him to say for us. Uh, it wouldn't have been for them. This is, this is where we're beginning to get clued in to some of Matthew's cleverness. That's been, he's been slow playing you since chapter 5. And he's gotten a little bit more explicit about it, starting in chapter 14. But so here's, we'll just do a little crowd participation again here for a moment. So think about the feeding of the 5,000 story. Do you know any other story in the Bible that involves someone receiving bread from heaven to feed the people of God in the wilderness? Moses, in what story? What book of the Bible? Exodus. Okay. Do you know, um, so just, just to be clear, there was the, the people of God were brought out of Egypt and God miraculously fed them prov by providing mana, 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 I don't know. I played too many card games with mana pools and so I don't know if it's mana from heaven or mana from heaven or whatever. The bread from heaven, right, fed all of these people. And so Matthew's providing us with the story of Jesus miraculously creating bread from heaven to feed people in the wilderness. Do you know a story of a man of God going up to a mountain to be alone with God and coming down and his appearance terrifies the people of God? 
Lift up. I'll be. It's Moses again. Remember when Moses went up Mount Sinai and his face glowed and he came down and people were terrified. They thought he was a demon monster or something. They made him put a, they made him put a veil over his face. Do you know a story about a man who led his people through dangerous, tumultuous waters to safety on the other side? Come on now. Do I need to keep explaining this? This story really, in many ways, way back almost a year ago, we talked about fulfillment as one of the key themes of the book of Matthew. And for Months now, Matthew has been slow playing us, showing us that Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses. He is the truer, the greater, the better Moses. Just as God revealed his name to a terrified Moses, some of y'all, if you want to understand the sermon better, if you want to understand Christianity better, you need to go and just read Exodus today. Go home and read that story and say, how does Jesus do this better? And what is God doing for us here? When Moses is talking to a bush that's on fire but not burning up. He says, who are you? What does God say to Moses? I am. What's your name? I am. Be another way of saying I exist. I am here. I, sometimes in English we render it I am that I am, which is so helpful. <laughs> I exist would be another way of saying it. Jesus looking at his disciples as the truer and better Moses says to them, I am. By saying, take courage, I am. He is saying, I am the God of Moses. He says what God says because Jesus is God. He is the great I am. No beginning and no end. If, go read Psalm 29. This is, that's a great picture of all that Jesus is as the Lord of the storms, the water walker. He thunders over the waters. His voice is powerful and majestic, and he's leading his people on a new exodus out of something far greater than Egypt. He's leading his people out of slavery to Satan, sin, and death into the freedom of a new life in a new family. He's leading us on the ultimate exodus into the kingdom of heaven. The first act of this miracle is the great I am walking out onto the water. It teaches us so much about the power, the divinity, and the lordship of Jesus. How in so many ways, the whole message of the Bible has been pointing to Jesus and preparing us for Jesus. It's, it's the clearest picture we have of who Jesus is up to this point in Matthew. He is the I am. He is the God of Moses. He is the Lord of the storms. The second act of the miracle we learn a great deal about us. I mean, we have this huge, highly exalted picture of Jesus. And then we get to talk about Peter. Verse 28, then Peter called to him. I'm sorry, this is so funny to me. It's okay if you don't think it's funny. I just really do. He says, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you walking on the water. And I'll just tell you, if there's room for Peter in the family of God, there is room for you. And now, and I'll just also add, you are not nearly, nearly as important or significant as Peter because you're not one of the apostles. And we could say a lot more about that. But before you like poo poo on Peter, just know he's a bigger deal than you are. Um, so just look at, look at this with me now. Peter says, 
to the ghost who just said, I am. And again, look at the, find the hair whipping Jesus with the waves and he's just standing there all tough and lightning's flashing behind him. And he says, Lord, so there's some faith, right? Impressive, Lord, that's what you sh- how you should respond to Jesus. Uh, tell me to come to you, walking on the water. You, you ever tried to walk on water? That's impressive faith, right? He calls Jesus Lord and says, I will walk out on the water to you. And now tucked in there though, <laughs> this is the part I think is so funny. If it's really you, like who else would it be, Peter? You know, you know what his face looks like. You know what his voice sounds like. And he just said, I am. Like it's one of the toughest statements in the Bible, the most authority-rich statements Jesus makes. And Peter says, if it's really you. So in Peter, you get this incredible picture of faith followed immediately by this picture of doubt and then followed immediately by this picture of faith. Lord, if it's really you, I will come to you. You see, if we could draw a graph where like the high lo- going up was faith and down was doubt. In like this five minute span of Peter's life, it's like, poof, poof, poof. there's doubt and faith. Peter wants to trust, but he's not so sure. So how does Jesus teach Peter that he can trust him? And Peter says, call to me and I'll come out to you walking on the water. Jesus doesn't immediately go and be like, "Uh, let me open up the book of Exodus and show you how I'm the truer and greater Moses. So when I tell you, you can come, you will have faith to believe because of all the ways I've fulfilled all these. You know, he, he just says, come, how will you learn to trust me? By getting out of the boat. And incredibly, Peter does it from terror to faith to doubt to faith. If you... Pay attention to the life of Peter. There's times where you'd be like, you've got it. You failed. You've got it. You failed. So when he steps out of the boat and he starts walking on water, that would be so cool. Uh, And we're tempted to say, you've got it. And then in verse 30, but when he saw the strong wind and the waves, he was terrified and began to sink. This is why this is totally ludicrous. Because a few minutes before, they weren't scared of the waves at all. We all saw that in the text. It didn't say anything about them being scared about the waves. They were scared of Jesus. And then when Jesus reveals himself to be the great I am and says, walk out on the water, now he's scared of the waves? This is just such a, a crashing down of his faith. What does this tell us about who we are? It means to follow Jesus, you will have faith and you will have doubt. And this isn't a unique story. Uh... One of my favorite stories in the Bible is uh, Elijah, 1 Kings 19. He makes fun of a demon god and he's like telling him he's asleep and he's on the toilet and he eventually casts fire down from heaven and then he and all these guys go and kill 4,000 or some thousands of all these wicked priests. It's like, it's intense and bloody and supernatural. And, And then he finds out the queen is mad at him. And he runs for his life for a whole day and sits down in the woods and says, God, kill me now. And you're like, what happened, Elijah? And then God brings him through all this stuff and says, why are you here? There's, go, it's in your Bible, I promise. First Kings 19. And God says to Elijah, what brought you here? And the correct answer would be, I totally chickened out and I ran from the crazy queen. Like that's why he's there in the woods on the mountain Instead, he says to God, my zeal for the Lord. No one in Israel loves you but me. And it's like, come on, wake up. Look at your life. 
Look at why you're here. He's totally clueless, right? Or a little bit from here in Matthew, after the resurrection of Jesus, the disciples see the resurrected Jesus. And we'll get to this verse. We'll do a whole sermon on it. It says, they worshiped him and they still had their doubts. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. There's faith and there's doubt. Following Jesus means we will make great strides in learning to trust him, and then we will get scared again. Following Jesus means walking on water and sinking in fear because of the waves. It means saying, I will come with boldness and faith, and then a few moments later, verse 30, we shout, save me, Lord. And this is moments apart, Peter saying, call me and I will come to then crying out, save me, Lord. And despite the contradictions and failures, Jesus saves him. Verse 31, Jesus, say that word, immediately reached out and grabbed him. He wasn't like, I'm going to make you learn. I'm going to make you learn. Immediately he reached out and grabbed him. You have so little faith, Jesus said. Why, Why did you doubt me? This might be the best one-verse summary of the Christian life in terms of how it works, the, the walking in of it. Jesus saves, and then he corrects us. We have faith, then we doubt. You have to see the order here. Jesus saves, and then he trains. This, again, this has been uh, communicated to us since Exodus. Does God give the Ten Commandments before or after he rescues them from, Israel, or from Egypt? I said that really poorly. The point is, God saved them out of Egypt. He doesn't sit there and come to Moses and be like, now listen, I'm going to give you guys some rules. And if you follow the rules for the next two, three hundred years, maybe I'll do something about it. We'll see. That's the tricky thing about having a works-based salvation. How do you know? How do you know that you're in God's good graces, that God will show up for you? Do you think... <laughs> Well, let's take the 674 laws of the Old Testament, and that will be the way we decide. Well, good luck. God comes and single-handedly saves his people from slavery in Egypt. And then he says to them, here are 10 rules for how you should live. These rules were about teaching slaved people how to be free again. Jesus saves, and then he trains, just as it was in the Exodus. God delivers and then he instructs. Or to put it more simply, grace than faith. We are saved by grace and the response to grace is faith. And when faith fails, more grace. Our doubt is no match for the power of Jesus. And our failures are no match for the grace of Jesus. And if all of this weren't enough, I'm going to go beyond what's written here a little bit. I envision Jesus picking up Peter and throwing him in the boat like a wet fish, right? He saves him, but he makes it hurt just a little bit. And is like, how could you doubt me? And Peter's there flopping. And Jesus stomps with two big sandaled feet in the boat, thud, thud. And then the storm goes silent. And you can see Jesus standing there dripping wet. And all of a sudden it's still. And Peter's gasping for breath. And they all say, you really are the son of God. Who is Jesus? He is, I am. 
He's the Lord of the storms. He's the Lord of nature. He's the King of glory and grace. He's the greater Moses, liberating us from fear and death. Who are we? We are faithful doubters. We respond and we sink. And even so, Jesus saves and then he corrects. Even on this high note, it's just such a tough scene that Jesus gets on the boat and they say, you really are the son of God. And it's like, all right, the disciples get it. Listen, we'll see it in the next chapter. More failure is coming. More doubt, more misbelief, disbelief. But even our failures become testimonies to the person of Christ. We don't want to be a church that celebrates failures or like gets tattoos on our arms about like, I'm such a mess or, you know, like that we brag about how much we fail. But we can be honest because even in our failures, they remind us and others that Jesus is Lord. It's his grace that sustains us and carries us, not our perfect faith or our perfect obedience. So if you're here this morning, you have to know that King Jesus has come to set you free. I love this imagery. He's the water walker coming to bring you safely across the storms of life. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're worried about. But you need to know that you have someone in your life who looks at you and says, I am. Take courage. Don't be afraid. I am. Even a touch of his robe will heal you. You see that at the end of 14. And he's so much more available to you than that. Some of you have been wondering what to do with this Jesus for a long time. You've been coming and hearing these stories of Jesus. And maybe you're like Peter standing at the edge of the boat. You've heard of his death and resurrection, his healings, the forgiveness he offers you. And maybe you're standing there at the edge of the boat saying, if it's really you, say so and I'll come. And all I can tell you is you learn who Jesus truly is. You see him fully once you step out of the boat and follow him. And I'm, I just wish I could promise you it would make sense to you. He's saying to Peter, walk on water, bro. You know, <laughs> It may seem counterintuitive to you. It may seem dangerous and risky to you. The only way to learn how to trust God is to trust him. And so I, I plead with you, take a step. He's, he's inviting you to come. Take a step and start following him. Some of you, some of you have made that step long ago, or you've said Jesus is Lord, and you're plagued by guilt over your fear and your failures. Maybe you're like Peter, and you've sank. You made some grand profession of faith, and, and you bailed, and you're just spinning that failure over in your mind. Uh, maybe you come from a place that said there's no room for doubt in the Christian life, uh, which if that's the case, fire me now, y'all. Like, I, don't, I do not understand that. Uh, I can talk to you if you'd like about some of the more confusing aspects of Christianity, like a man rising from the dead, you know? I, if you're someone who wrestles with doubt, or you're like Peter, or you're like me, where you believe and you ask for help with how much you don't believe, and you wonder how those fit together, I have this broad category that I put that experience in, the internal contradictions of, I've got faith and I doubt. I put it in this huge bucket that I call normal Christianity. Normal Christianity. I'm not proud of doubt. I don't think we should throw doubt parties. But to follow Jesus, you will have doubts. And is our God big enough that even in our doubts, even in the feelings of his apparent absence, might he still be working and wooing us? He doesn't look at Peter and reprimand him 
or call him names prior to saving him. He saves, and then his instructions are invitations to life and freedom. When he says, come to me, when he says, follow me, when he says, don't do this or do this, he's saying, do you want to live free? Some of y'all need to hear God's not a buzzkill. God is not anti-fun, anti-pleasure. Psalm 16, one, pleasures, O Lord, are at your right hand forever. If you're into forever pleasure, you should be into God. It's his idea. It was his game. All of his invitations are about bringing life to you and freedom to you. Communion is the great anchoring reminder of our freedom where we remember that despite all of his power, all of his authority, the I am laid down his life for us. He secures our new life in our new family, not with our perfect faith, but with his perfect blood. In other words, to keep with the Exodus theme, this is our weekly Passover meal where we're reminded that we are hidden and we are safe in the blood of Christ. So let's come remember that we are his and we are safe. And so we remember the night he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of bread. He blessed it. And after giving thanks for it, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Uh, In the same way, after the meal, he took a cup of wine and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, our new relationship, which is sealed with the shedding of my blood. What seals your relationship with God, your place in this new life, in this new family? It's the shed blood of Christ. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward and rip off a piece of bread and dip it in wine or juice. A wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it and we'll have gluten-free elements to my left. We'll also have single-serve communion with the cup and the wafer all wrapped in one. We only have a few. We'll have more next week, and it's all, here we are, trying to prepare for coronavirus, I guess, but so this is what, this is what we're doing. Um, so we have a few of those left. You know if you really need that, or if you're the kind of person that's at higher risk, and so we just ask, we only have a few this week. We'll have plenty next week, so Uh, If you'd like, they'll be up here with the gluten-free station, and then we'll have normal stations up front and in the back. I'll pray for us, and then uh, Christians, let's come remember our hope together. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook, or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.